You can be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We looked last week at the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 12, specifically looking at Jesus' correction of the Pharisees and their abuse, their abuse of the Sabbath. They had turned what was supposed to be a day of rest into a laborious chore. And Christ is saying that these guys have gone too far with the rules and the regulations that they have placed upon observing the Sabbath. And the point that was made last week was that whereas the Pharisees go too far, perhaps we don't take the Sabbath seriously enough. And so if you would, we're going to look at the second half of that passage to verse 14. As is our custom, we'll read the word and we will pray and we'll ask the Lord to, to work in us today and then we'll, we will get to work. I actually put it in proclaim correctly. Good, it's up. Uh, so we're going to start way back in 1128 and, uh, and then we're going to read all the way through. I think that what the, the, the Sabbath discussion that Christ engages in flows out of the yoke, the invitation that he offers us in in Matthew chapter 11. So beginning in verse 28, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, that, that is the showbread, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him? but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, again, that law question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for creating the Sabbath. We thank you for commanding us to delight in it, to rest on this day of rest that you have given to us, Lord. Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would see in this encounter between Christ and the Pharisees, not just 
how Jesus was trying to correct their erroneous perception of the Sabbath, but Lord, we pray he would correct our erroneous perception as well. Father, let the day of rest be restored to a place of honor in our eyes. And let us find our deepest rest in worshiping and glorifying your Son. Let us find our deepest rest in Christ. We pray that your Spirit, the Spirit that has authored this book before us, the Spirit that leads your people into an understanding of all truth, we pray and beseech you, Lord, by the righteousness of Christ, that the Spirit would open our minds to understand and bring faith to our hearts to believe and to obey and be refreshed and nourished by this day that you have given us. We ask that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen. Makes an interesting statement in verse 8. He says, for the Son of Man, that is a reference to himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a question I want to pose to you today. Is Jesus the Lord of your Sabbath? All days are owned by God. All the way from Sunday, all the way to Saturday, he owns every day. But is there a particular day that he as Lord has set aside for you to enjoy? And as your Lord, are you taking advantage of the day that he has given to you? I made a comment last week, we're all procrastinators, we do it on a regular basis. There are all things that we would rather put off till tomorrow, chores and things that we just don't want to do. And every time we do it, we feel guilty because we know it's waiting for us. We've got to get up the next morning. We've got to do that thing we put off till the next day. So you always sort of live the day with a sense of guilt, like, I could be doing this right now, but I'm not. There is one day where you can procrastinate. Amen. And not feel guilty. Why don't we take advantage God has given us a day where he says, you don't have to feel bad about procrastinating. In fact, I want you to procrastinate. Let's take a look here. First off, before we get into the particulars of this text, I want to just back up for a second and look at the broader context of Scripture. The passage is quite clear. In Genesis chapter 2, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he took the seventh day off. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Let's just start with that observation for a second. There's this thing called a week. It's a week. It's about seven days. Has that ever struck any of you before as particularly significant? Because it should. Every other measurement of time measures something. It's not just a demarcation of time. It's a measurement of the motion of the universe. We track time by looking at the moon. We track time by looking at the day. We track time by looking at the planet going around the sun, we measure years that way. So whether it be the day, the 24 hours it takes for the day to rotate and for the, sun to, for the earth to rotate all the way around, for the sun to you know, shine on all parts of the earth, whether it takes 24 hours for that or whether it takes roughly somewhere between 28 to 30 days, 31 days for this moon cycle to take place, be the month as it measures the cycle of the moon as the moon waxes and wanes as we go from a full moon to a nearly invisible moon, or whether it be the year, it takes roughly 364 days, 65 days to get around this, not exactly 65, that's why you have leap years every once in a while. Whether it be the year, the month, or the day, all of those things measure 
clear motions of the earth. The week doesn't measure anything. Have you ever noticed that? Seven doesn't even really divide neatly into 30. That's why we, some months we have five weeks and some months we just have four weeks. Seven doesn't go anywhere. And you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's because we're Christian and we're a Western civilization and we're founded on the scripture and so our calendar reflects that. Not just ours. The thing that I find really interesting, if you look at sociologists and anthropologists who do these digs all around the world, ancient prehistoric cultures, the Aztecs, you know, First Nations, Indians, wherever they go, whatever they dig up, did you know that every culture has a week? It's not exactly seven. Every, most cultures, the, the overwhelming preponderance of civilizations around the world, as archaeologists have dug, as anthropologists have researched it, invariably all of them come really close to seven. You do have those outliers. There's one culture that has a three-day week. Uh, it's over. It was a primitive Asian culture. And then you have another culture that, that has gone as far as nine days. So you do have those outliers. But the overwhelming majority holds pretty closely to a seven-day week. Why? Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that we as human people growing up in radically different parts of the world, being raised in totally different cultures, somehow intrinsically order our lives according to a unit of measurement that measures nothing in particular. As I've reflected on it, I can only come to one conclusion, and it comes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, which says, point blank, and on the seventh day, God finished his work, all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. Then there's the Ten Commandments given to Moses, in which in Exodus chapter 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is one true God. There is only one God. And whether he is acknowledged or worshipped as such is irrelevant. All humanity, just by putting this thing called a week into their calendar, subconsciously testifies the reality that the one true God is in control of everything. Not just the motion of the sun, not just the motion of the planet around the sun, not just the motion of the days, the rotation of the earth, but even something that cannot be precisely measured, such as a week. We're made in his image. And as God, he said, I'm going to go six days, and then on the seventh day, I'm going to step back and I'm going to enjoy what I've done. And people who are created in his image, all people, whether we worship him or acknowledge him as such, deep down in our souls, even our cultures, cultures that have nothing to do with Christianity, that reject Christ, still order themselves according to the way that we're made in his image. So there's this thing called a week. Let's just acknowledge that. And the teaching is pretty clear. There are six days of labor, and then there's a day of rest. The word Sabbath is used to denote this day. 
word, it's a Hebrew verb. It literally means to cease or to strike from your labor, to take a day off, to not do that work which you ordinarily would do. That's clearly taught in the Old Testament. Now, in order to make sure that you're not working, the Pharisees felt that it was their job to come up with a bunch of rules and regulations to make sure you didn't cross over the threshold of ordinary work that you'd have to do the other six days of the week and to make sure that you were truly taking a day off. They took it too far. Jesus confronts them. He gives three statements, and then he follows it up with a fourth, which is profound. Statement number one, he says, haven't you ever read how David did what was when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it wasn't lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priests. David went in and he broke ceremonial law. He broke ritual. He ate bread, which he wasn't allowed to eat, and nothing ever came of it. God never punished him for it. God never said anything critical about it. The key being that God valued his life, and he was on the run from Saul, and he was hungry. And so we clearly understand that the Sabbath day is a day for rest, which means that if there's something you need to do to preserve your life, if you're literally on the run for your life, God gives you the day for the sustenance, for the nourishment, and for the cultivation of your life, which means anything you need to do in order to continue your existence is not in contradiction with the day. Number two statement, the most important thing you need to do with your day is hear a word from the Lord. Which is why he says, have you not, verse 5, read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? They're working. They are working twice as hard. The sacrifices required for Sabbath are twice as much as the sacrifices required for any other day of the week. And yet they're asked, they're commanded by God to do this, which means the most important thing. Again, an exemption from the ordinary understanding of the normal rules that would apply would be this. Anything you need to do to make sure that you're hearing from the Lord, that you're worshiping the Lord, is consistent with the purposes of the day. And the justification for all of this comes from the next statement. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What these 12 guys that are walking with me through this grain field are doing, they're plucking heads of grain, they are engaged in an act of worship right now, far beyond normal, ordinary temple observance. Then he says, if you had known what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, he says, if you know what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. And that is a reference to God's heart. God is saying through the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy more instead of rather than sacrifice. Sacrifice being a reference to the ritualistic, ceremonial slaughtering and sacrificing of animals. All that is pointing forward to this person which is greater than the temple. All of it points to Christ. Which means that in the Old Testament, all of their ritual, all of their worship, everything that they were commanded to do on the Saturday, the Sabbath, the seventh day, was intended to point them towards Jesus. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And look at this. He says, the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Is Christ the Lord of your Sabbath? Is he? Now, I want you to just look carefully at this text. I'm going to make three observations, and then I'm going to follow that with five statements. Observation number one, when the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of breaking the law, he doesn't dispute it. He justifies it. They are breaking the law because there's something better than the law here. He, makes this, he, never, he never goes back and he never says, you're wrong for making those accusations. He never disputes the legality of what they're doing. He never steps back and says, you're right, my guys are wrong. But he also never says, no, 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 we're not breaking the law. He finds a justification for setting aside the law for something greater. Observation number two. The two examples he references point to the fact that life is the purpose of keeping the Sabbath. Life and eternal life. Observation number three. You'll notice from the next passage here, they went out and tried to find a way to destroy him. We all worship Jesus as God. He's omniscient. Nothing suddenly occurs to him. He doesn't have those aha moments like you and I do. He knew that he was picking a fight. He knew it. All the Gospels point to the fact that it was not that Jesus was performing miracles and healing people and feeding the multitudes that really ticked the Pharisees off. It was his violation in their eyes of the Sabbath. All of the Gospels mention this. From the moment he arrives on the scene, he begins poking at this controversy with the Pharisees. Now, you and I look at this and we're like, yes, that's right. Uh, you know, Jesus is right. The Sabbath, these guys are taking it too seriously. We can do whatever we want, man. Wait a second. When he rebukes the Pharisees for adding a bunch of man-made rules and traditions to the Sabbath, he himself never fully sets the Sabbath aside. Look at what he says here in the next passage. He went on from there, he entered the synagogue. There was a man there with a withered hand. Wasn't he glad he went to church that day? (laughs) And they asked him, so you're this poor guy with this obviously deformed hand. Say your name is Joe. They're like, hey, Joe, stand up for a second. Oh, man, like they're calling on me to stand up. So he stands up. Jesus, he's got a you know, deformed hand. He's all like, oh, man, I wish they weren't like making me the center of all this. Is it right for you to heal him? Now, if you're Joe with the deformed hand, you're thinking, yeah, yeah I'd like the use of my hand. That'd be good. But you know who these guys are. Pharisees. And Jesus catches them in their own logic because all of them have animals, all of them have, you know, sheep and flocks and all of this sort of stuff. And all of them would ordinarily, on the course of a normal day, if they had an animal that fell into a pit, lift it out of the pit. And Jesus' statement is, how is it basically that you love your animals more than you love a man? And if you're the guy, if you're Joe with a withered hand, you're thinking, yes. Exactly, that's what I've been saying all along. Come on, hook me up. And Jesus is going to do it. 
He points out to them, your logic is flawed, you don't even understand what the purpose of the Sabbath is, and now they're intentionally setting him up because they want to accuse him. He's going to catch them in their logic, he's going to heal Joe's hand, and they're going to walk away and say, we want to destroy this guy. All of the disciples, all of the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all point to the fact that it was this event that he routinely was healing people and doing miracles on the Sabbath that absolutely ticked them off. It wasn't the fact that he was healing and doing miracles. That's cool. It was the fact that he was violating their interpretation of the Old Testament. And it wasn't that they were interpreting it necessarily wrongly. Their interpretation is the Sabbath is a day of rest, but they twisted it into an act of self-righteousness. He confronts their self-righteousness and in the process of doing that performs a miracle that shows all of human life needs a Savior. And He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Is He the Lord of your Sabbath? Say, okay, so let's break this down. Let's just say that the Sabbath rules is still important, not not the Pharisaical rules, but let's just say, for argument's sake, that the Sabbath is still important, that we still need to take a day off. You know as well as I do that for the last 2,000 years, the church has been meeting on Sunday, not on Saturday. How does that work? Is there some evidence? Is there some command in the New Testament? Does Jesus say to us, you shall continue to observe the Sabbath on Sunday? No, there's no commandment like that. And then sometimes I kind of almost wish that Jesus would just say that and it would make it easier. You know, you just be like, well, you know, first make believe this and there you go. Chapter 2 or 3.16. This is what you need to do. You don't find that. But what you will find if you listen carefully and if you think critically about the gospel and what it means to be born again into a new relationship with God, you will see clearly that his purpose and his desire for you is that you would still delight and enjoy him and take a special day out of your week in which you will make him your focus. All days of the week belong to God. All of them do. But if we look carefully at the spirit of the text, you're going to find that there is a Lord's day, that there is a Sabbath day, And that he does ask of us that we would richly enjoy that which he gave his life to purchase for us. Now, where do you find this? Matthew 28, I want you to just flip there for a second. You're going to need to rely on me for this next section. It's there in the ESV, it's there in the text, but I need to show you something that's going on behind the English translation. I need to show you something that's going on with the Greek. The normal word for first day of the week, the the normal word for first in the Greek is protos. It's number one. There's another word that's almost never used, meon. It is never used. There are over 150 occurrences of the word protos in the New Testament. First this, first that. And there are many references to Sunday in which they will call it the first, the protos day of the week. What is most interesting for our purposes, and I want you to step back and I want you to realize something. The Holy Spirit is writing the scriptures through human authors. This is God speaking. We're going to encounter six, six instances of this expression, the first day of the week. 
Now, what's interesting, and I need you to focus on this, the Holy Spirit's job is to exalt Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to sanctify us. We become sanctified by the Holy Spirit when we make it our purpose to exalt Christ. The exaltation of Christ is the means whereby the Holy Spirit brings us into greater conformity into the image of Christ. So the Spirit's job is to exalt Christ. Our job as we get in step with the Holy Spirit. We're all exalting Christ. The Spirit authors the text. The Spirit authors the Scripture. The Scripture is the instrument that guides us into holiness, that reveals more about Jesus to us. The most common word used for first is protos. And yet when we come to the resurrection account in all four Gospels, again in the book of Acts and again in Corinthians, we're going to find a very unusual expression. In other words, the Spirit is moving five different authors in six different places to refer to this day of the week in a totally different way because of what Christ did on this day. Now, the Holy Spirit's job is to exalt Christ. Our job is to exalt Christ. So think critically about what's being said here. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, Greek word there, Sabbath, straightforward. After the Sabbath, meta sabbatu, after the Sabbath, it's ablative. This would be Sunday. Very clear. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. How do Jews reference a week? I mentioned this last time. The word that means week for Jews is Sabbatu. The days unto the Sabbath. They have a first day, they have a second day, they don't call it a Monday, they don't call it a Tuesday. Tuesday isn't a day unto itself. The Jews are working their way through these six days as they're leading up until the Sabbath. The only day of the week in the Jewish calendar that has a name is the Sabbath. And the way that they talk about their weeks, they have to use the word Sabbath to talk about their week. The word for week in Jewish culture doesn't exist. We say week, they would say the days unto Sabbath, because every day bows before the Sabbath. Matthew who is Jewish, tax collector, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this statement. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day unto the Sabbath. Now, that's the expression that's going to be used. The first day unto the Sabbath. You'd think he'd use protos, the first day, protos. It's not the word he uses. He uses meon, which is almost completely non-existent. Not only in the Bible... It's only used six times, and it's going to be to talk about this special day. But it's almost completely non-existent in extra-biblical literature. Protoss, by this point in history, has become such the dominant word to describe one, to be the word for the number one, that this word is never used. It's still around, but it's almost never used. Which means that the authors of Scripture, as they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're seeking for a way, being Jewish, typically they'd say it's the first day of the week unto the Sabbath. But given the fact that this is the day that Christ comes out of the ground for the first time in Jewish culture, whereas every day of the week is one, two, three, four, Sabbath, they want to give a special name to this day. So they dig. And they find a word that still basically means one, but it's different than the traditional word for one. After the Sabbath, 
on the meon, not protos, day of the week. Jesus comes out of the ground. You find it also used in Luke. Luke is a Gentile. He's very well versed. He writes some of the finest Greek in all of the New Testament. This would have been an obscure word, a very obscure word for Luke. It was an obscure word for the Jewish writers as well, and yet Luke follows suit. So does Mark. So does John. Acts. We continue to move on. In the book of Acts, Luke is the author of Acts, and he makes the statement, let me find it here in my notes. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, again, meon ton sabaton. Unusual word. They're trying to give this day a name now. And then you find it again in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is meeting with the church. He preaches all night long. It's my kind of guy. There's a guy there, he's like so tired, he's in the upper window, and his, he's so tired, he falls out of the window and he breaks his neck. This is Pastor Appreciation Month, don't you wish I <laughs> preached like that? So you guys are like falling over asleep in your chairs? Of course not. The expression that Luke uses as he's writing the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mia, instead of Protoss. Paul as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, again, meon, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul is giving them instructions in terms of how they're to worship. One of these things that they've got going on is they're going to collect an offering in order to alleviate the poverty of the saints in Jerusalem who are going through a really hard time. One of the things you need to do when you worship is you need to take up this offering every week on that special day. Taking up an offering is something that we do as an act of worship. And in Paul's mind, as he's giving instructions to the church at Corinth in terms of how they are to worship, there's no doubt in his mind that it's to take place on that special day of the week. This is, such, this is overwhelmingly the case of the, of the church in the first century. It's clearly alluded to multiple times in the New Testament that by the time you come to the end of the New Testament, you know, they're trying to find a name for this day. So they're still calling it the first day of the week, but they're using a different word for one, an obscure word for one, but you figure it out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the time we get to the book of Revelation. The Apostle John, he knows what to call it. In Revelation chapter 1, of course, he's in exile. He's on the island of Patmos. He says, uh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. He's imprisoned as a result of his testimony for Christ. Verse 10, even in jail, he's still worshiping. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Is the Lord the Lord of your Sabbath? Now, the Lord owns all of the days of the week. He owns every day that ever was or ever will be. But does he get special recognition, or doesn't he, for owning one particular day of the week? The apostles worshipped on Sunday. 
John mentions being in the Spirit while he's in jail. He's all alone. There's no other gathering of Christians there, and yet he takes time to be in the Spirit, to be worshiping on the Lord's Day. The church collects offerings on the first day of the week. Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week. It starts off with first. We can't call it first because it's something special, something extraordinary has come. So we need to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, come up with a special name. That still sounds a lot like the other word that everybody else is using. It's just a different word for one. So John, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, terms it a totally different thing. He gives it a character of possession. This isn't just the Lord's day in the sense that God comes out of the ground on this day. That's true. It's the Lord's day in that he owns it. Does he own your Sabbath? There are two things that are just wildly on the rise. Entertainment, the Netflix culture, and therapy. If you go back and you trace the last 20 years, the number of individuals who are seeking therapy has skyrocketed, and incidentally, cable TV has fallen on hard times because of the rise of Netflix. The rise of entertainment and the rise of needing a counselor points to the fact that there's something wrong with our culture. I've been trained in counseling. I've spoken with a number of counselors. Many, many psychologists say, you know, most of these people, they would never bother coming to me if they would just take a break. They're overworked. They're stressed out. They haven't learned how to rest their body, and so I'm writing them sleeping medication, which they don't really need if they would force themselves just to sleep. That should tell us something. We all need a day off. We're not taking the Lord's day to find our ultimate rest in Him. So we're turning to Hollywood to distract us from the pain of our own reality, or we're turning to psychologists to prescribe meds, which the overwhelming amount of prescription meds that are given by psychologists and counselors are not psychotropic-type drugs for things like schizophrenia. They're muscle relaxants and sleep aids. We, as a church, don't need those things. What we really need is Christ. Now, some of you are out there and you're thinking, you know, are you saying that we should prioritize church on Sunday? It's in our membership covenant. That's what I'm saying. The scriptures clearly allude to it. It is absolutely necessary. Not because I just feel better when I'm not preaching to an empty room, but because you really need to come and worship God on Sunday. Like, you need that. You need it. Because there is only one person that can heal you. There is only one person who can make things better in your life. And his name is Christ. And this is his day. Say, well, like, how seriously should we take this? I have a husband who's involved in working in a mine. I'm a nurse. I have to pull shifts at the hospital. You know, like, how far does this go? I'm a corrections officer. I work at the prison. I have to work on Sundays on occasion. What, what type of restrictions or what type of exemptions are allowed? Like, how do I get out of this thing? Because there are certain things that I'm committed to that will naturally prevent me from worshiping 
on the Lord's day? Well, I think the passage offers us a number of clues. Number one, he mentions David. He says, did you not read about how David had to basically break the law in order to sustain his life? So, if you're a nurse or a doctor, if you're involved with, if you're a paramedic, or if you're in any way involved, a police officer, fireman as well, let me just throw that whole group out there. If you're in any way involved in emergency response, if your calling in life from the Father is that you would be there at the drop of a dime to go and rush to someone's need in the moment that they're in a tragic accident in order to help save their lives, it's completely sanctioned by Scripture. Say, well, I'm a corrections officer. Those guys can go one day without being looked after. Come on. I'm glad you're laughing because I'm joking. (laughs) Keith is probably thinking, yeah, we'll just lock them in their cells. They don't need to be fed. Who cares? Let's let's take a day off. Yeah, I'm good with that. (laughs) Sadly, no, that's not going to work. You know, our government probably wouldn't take too kindly to that. But if you're involved in the military, if you're involved as a police officer, if you're a corrections officer, and your job requires that you, in order to keep the rest of us safe, from the criminal type element that's out there, if that's your job, I think that's completely consistent with what Christ is saying here in the scriptures. Have you not read what David did? When his life was in jeopardy, he violated the law for the sustaining of his life. So whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a corrections officer, whether you serve in the army, as long as you understand, Sunday still Sunday. And your work on that day takes on a special character. You're not just doing a normal job, but you need to remind yourself when you go to work at the hospital, when you show up at the fire hall, you're working in violation of the Sabbath to fulfill its deepest meaning, which is keeping people safe and sustaining lives. Some of us are out there, we're like, you know what, I just don't feel like coming to church. I just, you know, I could care less for worship. Are you saying that I'm going to hell if I don't want to go to church? No. I'm not saying that. I would say to you, no, you're not going to hell if you just don't want to go to church in the same way that I would say to you, if you killed a man in cold blood as an act of murder, you also would not go to hell for that. The Ten Commandments, though, haven't been set aside. They haven't. So in the same way that as a Christian, we're clearly called not to go out murdering people in violation of the Sixth Commandment, we're also called clearly to prioritize worship on the Sabbath. Well, what if I just come two out of four days? Well, let's say you got four men in your life and you only kill two of them. You still go, is that okay? Like, can we just do that? No, of course not. There's no compromise here. The first century Christians had to work the same as 21st century Christians did, and guess what they did? They still found a way out of it and still went to church on Sunday, not Saturday. So some of you are here like, well, my husband works, shift work at the copper mine. What about him? The spirit of the text before us is that we need to prioritize Sunday worship. 
Copper mines, they're trying to squeeze eight days of labor into seven. They're going to try and get these four-day shifts, rotating shifts. They're trying to use their employees for all that they're worth. For what? Making more money. In other words, the ultimate goal of a copper mine is not for the sustaining of life. It's not for the preservation of life. And in order to make money, it's violating the rest that is actually very much so needed and commanded by the Father in the Scriptures. So what does this mean for us if we're copper workers, mine workers, shift workers? It means we should make every effort to try and get Sundays off. It means that we should try to find a way to get on a particular crew or onto a particular shift that will enable us to take advantage of the working week that the Lord has given us. The first century church did it. They were persecuted for it, and it became one of their greatest witnesses to the reality of Jesus coming out of the grave. What if my husband cannot get off on Sundays no matter how hard he tries to get onto a different shift? He doesn't have the seniority for it, or there are other variables influencing it. The number one thing that all men are called to do is to provide for their family, put food on the table, put a roof over their head, keep them safe, provide for them. So, if your husband or if you are a shift worker and you find yourself in the unenviable position where you unfortunately have to work on Sundays. I want you to know that as you do that, to provide for your family, that is completely legitimate in the scriptures. And yet, your goal should always be to try to gather with the Lord's people in the Lord's house, resting your body as opportunity allows because that is what the Lord has commanded. The Mormons came to visit me yesterday. They come, you know, every couple of years. They try to convert me to Mormonism. I allow them because I'm secretly trying to convert them to becoming a Baptist. <laughs> it's tit for tat, right? Like, I want them. I mean, they love me, you know. They're obviously rejecting Christ, which means that they're going to hell. They want me to go with them, which is, you know, it's kind of touching. I want them to come with me to heaven. So I, I appreciate their sincerity, their obvious love for me, as misguided as it is. And I hope they feel that back for me when I'm trying to get them to come over to the good side. They always give you these things. I brought it with me today. Um, they're like, you know, our church is the one true church. We have a prophet. You, you don't have a prophet. Like, well, we got Jesus. That's, you know, that, we got the word. That works for me. And uh, they're kind of, we're kind of going back and forth. And they're like, look, here's a pamphlet. You need to read this. The title of the pamphlet, The Restoration of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been restored because of the Mormon church. We lost it for a couple thousand years, but now it's back. So they say. So they hand me this book, and they're going on. And I just asked them a question. I said, can I just, it, it, you know, as far as you guys believe, is, Ju is Jesus Jewish? Oh, yeah, 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 he's Jewish. He's Jewish. Why is Jesus a white guy then? Why, why is he white? You're talking about the fact that you've restored the gospel, but this is not like any Jesus I would expect. He's got 
sandy, blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm looking at this picture of him. His fingernails are like immaculate, like <laughs> just, he's obviously had a manicure before he stood for this, this photo shoot here. I mean, I'm like, wow, like I don't even do manual labor. I'm, I'm one of those fingernail chewer guys and I'm just like, those are some beautiful hands. And of course, he's wearing a robe, and it's like totally spotlessly clean, you know, it's like white, and like there's a light shining on him and all that sort of thing. And you just know he's got to be walking around with a lamb in his hands, right? Because everywhere he went, he carried a lamb. I look at this picture, and I'm like, man, that's hilarious. And I commented, I was like, you know, because I mean, even his hair is like shampooed, it's like perfectly combed and everything, his beard is neatly trimmed. And I'm like, this is not really, you know, as I think of Christ, this is you know, not really what I think of. And here's the thing. I'm kind of weird that way. Every time I see a picture of Jesus, I always comment on it. I'm like, that's not what Jesus would have looked like. And I'm always making fun of it. I'm always kind of like commenting on the fact that this is absurd. This is obviously not what it would be. So I come inside, you know, and my wife, she's always encouraged me, you know, just send them on their way. You're not going to convert them. They're not going to convert you. Just leave it alone. But I can't. I'm like a moth drawn to the flame. I come inside, I've got this pamphlet. I'm like, yeah, you know, and I'm laughing and making fun. And I always do this. I'm always making fun. I'm always poking at these these pictures of Jesus with like this like product hair and like it's all perfect and everything. And so Shanti asked me the question, he's like, what do you want Jesus to look like? You're always mocking everybody else's sort of like photo of Jesus. What's your Jesus look like? Well, let's think about this, you know. If I could write my own Jesus, what would I, what would I make him look like, you know? And of course, I, I don't know. I, I hope he looks Jewish. When I, when I see him face to face, I'm pretty sure he's going to look Jewish. He's not going to be white, Anglo-Caucasian. He's going to have olive skin, dark hair, probably black. I don't really know what Jesus is going to look like. I haven't really thought about it. Have you ever thought about it, though, in terms of when you see Christ face-to-face for the first time? What do you think he might look like when he looks at you for that first time? I'm talking eyeball-to-eyeball. What do you think it's going to be like? What, what do you want to say to him? I, I don't know about you, but I've thought quite a bit about that. I, I shared this a while back. I've got like a little speech I, I kind of write. And I, every year I kind of change it, alter it. I don't want to be caught like, you know, empty-handed. Be like, ah, you know, I probably will be like that anyway. But when I see him for the first time, I want to tell him thank you. I want to tell him how much I appreciate what he did for me on the cross. I want to tell him I love him. I don't really know, like, what it's going to be like, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be slobbering all over him, you know. <laughs> His nice, neat, white sort of gown is going to be, like, plastered with my snot. Like, it's just, it's going to be horrible for him. Wonderful for me. Did you know that the Bible says where two or three people are gathered in my name, there am I? with them. Jesus says that. Do I have to go to church on Sunday? No. But I, I just want to ask you, why wouldn't you? When I come in this room with you guys and I hear the songs being sung that we'll sing for all of eternity, into glory. 
when I think about what he has given me. And it's just the beginning. There's no other place I want to be. The weeks are hard. The days are tough. People yell. People scream. People get mad. Something breaks inevitably. Car is always not working right. There's always a chore. There's always a to-do. Jesus died so that one day the chores would end. The to-dos would be done. And we would rest for eternity. We don't have that yet. Not in its fullness. But as a taste of what that will look like, he's given us Sunday. Now, if you give a man a gift, and he's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, you know, like, let's say you give him a picture of something with a whole bunch of signatures on it. He's like, oh, thank you so much. This is great. This is awesome. And he expresses his gratitude. And then he goes home, and you'd expect him to maybe hang it on a wall in his office. Let's just say he, like, pitches it under his bed. I'm not going to do that. I just want you to know. <laughs> let's just say he pitches it under his bed. Do you really believe he was grateful? Do you really think he enjoyed the gift that you gave him? No. He's lying to you, of course. He's just saying what you want to hear. He's just speaking the words, but there's no actual integrity to it. You've given him a precious gift, and he doesn't really care. And that's my fear for us as Christians. We, we all procrastinate. We've got one day where we're told we can, and it's okay. And yet we find a lot of different reasons to do a lot of different things on the one day where we're just called to rest and enjoy the gift he's given us. The man that has taught me the most about resting is my brother-in-law. He's a police officer with the San Antonio Police Department. You, you pose the question, is it absolutely wrong if I don't go to church on Sunday? No, but let me ask you another question. How much more right would it be if you would anyway? My brother-in-law is a police officer with the San Antonio Police Department. And uh, I went to visit him, this is a number of years ago now, 10 years ago or so. My nephew at that time, he was like uh, eight or nine. And uh, he, uh, you know, I went to visit, Shanti and I did, and, and he was working the night shift. He's a police officer, so, you know, he's working to preserve life, to keep us safe. As far as Christ's instructions are concerned, he's, you know, exempted from ordinary sort of Sabbath observance. He works all night. It's a rough night. There's a car wreck. There's a drunk driver. He had to go tearing off into the woods to chase down this drunk driver, fleeing the scene of a crime. And, you know, he's got to capture this guy, drag him back, processing paperwork, blah, 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 blah. It's a rough night. He works all night. He goes in at 7. He gets home at 7 the next morning. Dead tired. It's a Sunday morning. We're going to church. He smells bad. He's all sweaty. He's running around with that bulletproof vest on, all that gear. No time to take a shower. He's late getting home. Strips all that stuff on, throws on a polo. Spritz a little clone, maybe you can kind of hide it a little bit, you know, the smell. We get in the car, I'm like, hmm, there's no hiding that. We get to church, sing some songs, 
They all sit down in the pew. The preacher starts to preach. And he's out like a light bulb. Just, it's like, you know, not the subtle sort of like, it's like the ugly, like, man snore. He's like, like, he was loud. And we're sitting there, and eventually, even the preacher kind of got knocked off his game. He's like, you know, kind of like, so we kind of nudge him. We're like, dude, <laughs> you know, we're kind of, he's like, oh, oh, sorry. And he's been, you know, humiliated. So we're like, just kind of put your head forward if you need to, if you need to sleep. So we get in the car afterwards, you know, and first off, he was all night, you know, and he still went to church. He felt like he wanted to go to church on Sunday, slept through the sermon, didn't get anything out of it. We get in the car afterwards. My nephew's there, eight years old. He sits through the church, the worship service. Michael, my brother-in-law, he's sitting in the front seat. I'm in the back seat. My nephew's sitting there. He turns around the front seat and he says, son, tell me what the message was about today. I'm sorry I missed it. My nephew, Andrew, says, Dad, it's okay. Like, we all know what you do for a living. You don't have to worry. I, I know you're a great guy, and you set a great example for me. He says, no, like, you don't understand. I'm not just trying to set an example for you right now. And he quoted scripture. Man doesn't live by bread alone or a full eight hours of sleep at night. Man will only live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I do try to set a good example for you, my son, but I need to know what the word was today. Gives him the highlights. We go home. My brother-in-law passes out, basically crashes, like, just like that. Is he dead tired? Yeah. Does he have a pass on going to church on Sunday? If anyone did, that would be him. Is it wrong if you skip church? No, no, no. Will you go to hell if you skip church? No, no, no. It's not wrong. But it's so much more right if you would go anyway. Is the Lord the Lord of your Sabbath? Is he? Let's bow for a word of prayer.